welcome you to another edition of Being Well Informed. And today we are going to start our podcast and YouTube um, presentation with the Honorable Congressman Kwaisi Mfume. We are so happy, happy to have you on another edition of Being Well Informed. Thank you so much for coming uh, and, and visiting us today. Judge Barber, thank you so much for having me. Uh, your viewers may not be aware, but we, we've been trying to put this together for some time. And I'm so glad that we're both here together to have a conversation. I am too. We are so delighted to have you uh, as our guest today. And uh, let's get this started by talking about this new legislation uh, to preserve African-American history and culture. Tell us about uh, House Bill, is it 727? It is. It's the National Council on African-American History and Culture Act of 2023. And it is legislation that is designed to create a 12-person National Council in the uh, Endowment of the Arts uh, to be named by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And those 12 members would all across the nation uh, prepare an annual report for the Endowment on the Humanities about how we find a way and better ways to preserve the uh, history and the culture of African-Americans here in the United States. <clears throat> this is a major undertaking that I thought was particularly important when you consider uh, the efforts to ban books uh, that are taking place all over our country in every state, when you consider the efforts to roll back the teaching, quite frankly, of black history in Maryland and in every other state in the nation, uh, and when you consider also the misrepresentations of the history of African-Americans by persons who either want to diminish it or who want to rewrite it. And so we wanna make sure that what we have through this 12 member uh, commission that the president will name and the Senate will confirm uh, is a valid effort to make sure that we teach history and not his story. Uh, his story is rather dangerous because that's subjective, but history is objective. Uh, American history is intertwined with the history of African-Americans, Latinos, Asians. Uh, it's such a diverse history because we're such a diverse country. And I think we have to embrace that, not run away from it or to try to find a way to limit it. So what can we do as voters, as constituents, as residents of the state of Maryland to push this bill along and tell us, I guess, the, uh, the current status. Has it passed the House or is it uh, still in the House? No, it's in the House. Um, we've got 54 co-sponsors. Three of them are original co-sponsors. Um, we do have a companion measure, a bill just like this, that is going to be introduced in the Senate. Uh, that's going to be introduced by Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. We're working together here. And uh, because we have what's known as a bicameral legislature with two houses, both the House of Representatives and the Senate, in order to get something passed, it has to go through both. So it's starting here in the House. Uh, once we get this out of the House, it will then go to the Senate. Uh, and there's a long effort to make sure that it passes the Senate. 
So uh, the key here, more than anything else, is to, for me and others, to simply explain what this does. I think when most people realize that, they realize that it's, it's a good thing and the right thing to do, particularly in the face of all of the efforts to diminish that history. Um, so this commission is going to be visiting and looking at museums, they're going to be looking at curriculum, they're going to be looking at efforts in the past to, to preserve this, this history. They're going to be talking to people on the ground in every state in the nation, uh, accumulating this report back to Congress about what specific steps we take to make sure from here on out that that history is preserved. So in, you mentioned that the relevance uh, to this whole topic of book banning. How significant is this legislation in that regard? Well, it, it flies in the face of book banning because um, and I, I have to tell you, I've just I'm absolutely amazed at some of the books that are being banned under the name of uh, protection of, of, of values. Um, it's, it's just amazing they want to ban books with Martin Luther King's history in it or banning books with the history of of the slave movement and stuff like that. Uh, it's not a national effort that it's in other words, it's not being organized nationally. It's state by state, but it has a national impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the impact is on students. So do we want to grow up a bunch of students who have no sense whatsoever of the history that preceded them? And I'm just amazed at the number of books that are being banned, hundreds of books uh, all across this country by state and local officials who have what I consider to be a cultural bias and a proclivity for wanting to change or rewrite history. So what can we do to encourage this along in terms of um, support? Well, I think the main thing is to reach out to friends of ours who are outside of the state of Maryland and to ask them to write or to call their member of Congress, specifically the House of Representatives, urging them to get on to this bill. Like I said before, we've got about 50 four sponsors. It's going to take 218 votes to get it passed. Um, and so we've come a long way in a short period of time, but to accelerate that, it would be helpful uh, for people in Maryland, knowing that your Maryland representatives are okay. They're, they're in the right place on this. But if you know people in Virginia or California or Texas or Florida, uh, they should, if they believe in this, make an effort to take a few minutes to call or to write their congressperson and to ask them to sign on to House Bill 727, uh, the bill that protects and preserves African-American history in a bipartisan way, by the way. And uh, this 12-member commission, as I said before, will be uh, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and working on behalf of all of us. That's wonderful news. That's wonderful. But that's not the only piece of legislation that you've been working on. I know you work hard in Congress, and I know that you all put a lot of effort into what you do. So tell us a little bit more about some of the other important legislation that is part of this uh, session of Congress. Well, one of the things that means a great deal to me is the uh, Dawson Family Witness Protection Bill, uh, which we are just introducing And uh, it has a little bit of history. So if you would allow me uh, to explain how we got to where we are and what this means 
the witness protection program is a program designed by this bill to create and to appropriate $150 million a year for the next five years across the country for local police departments, cities, towns, and hamlets to be able to provide or enhance witness protection. Now, this is important, particularly in places like Baltimore, where we've got this stop snitching culture that has been around for over 20 years. Uh, and it started, quite frankly, in 2002, when the Dawson family were all murdered. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Dawson, Angela Dawson, was prepared to go to court to testify about drug dealing in her neighborhood and on her block. And uh, the effort here was to silence her. And so the people who were the drug dealers found a way to kick in her door, throw in firebombs in the middle of the night, catch the house on fire, burn it all the way down, and in the process, kill her, her husband, and her five children. They all died that night as a result of criminals not wanting her to testify in open court about what she saw. She was bold enough and strong enough to be prepared to do it, but we as a society were not prepared to protect her the way we should. And so to do away with that, we've got to find a way until we're able to get bad people behind bars to make sure that the good people are protected. We always say to people, if you see something, say something. So when people are prepared to say something in open court, we've got to make sure that they're protected long enough to get there and then protected afterwards. So this is near and dear to my heart. I stood outside of that house, the smolding rubble that night in 2002, uh, and just wept like everybody else, knowing that all five of those kids, her and her husband, uh, had died in that terrible fire just because they wanted to do the right thing. So this bill uh, hopefully encourages people not to be afraid to come forward. It provides protection both before and afterwards. It's the sort of thing that I, I don't want to say is made to order for Baltimore, but this is where it found its genesis. And the more I talk with members of Congress, they all agree whether they're Democrat or Republican. This, by the way, this is bipartisan sponsorship. People just believe that right is right and wrong is wrong. And so we've been getting more and more people signing on uh, to this piece of legislation. Uh, again, it's the Dawson Family Witness Protection Bill of 2023. Marvelous, marvelous work. Now, there's been discussion about the debt ceiling, and uh, I understand that that came out of the House. Do you think it's going to make it through? Uh, no, I don't. Okay. Um, no, we are in a situation where the United States is about to default on its debt. That has never happened before. We all know that when you get a bill, you pay your bill and you don't ignore it uh, because then you have no more credit. So the same thing should hold true for, for our government. And yet we are at the point where the debt limit has to be raised in order to make sure that the debts can be paid. And there's a great deal of resistance on the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, the Republican leadership has said, no, we won't raise it. What we will do is go in and whack and whack and whack away at programs uh, to find a way to do it that way. Well, when you do that, you hurt people. 
you hurt Medicare, you hurt Medicaid recipients. Uh, what they want to do is to do away uh, with the SNAP program and SNAP benefits, many of the discretionary programs that are in place that are helping people. And I just think that's wrong. That's particularly when you don't have to do it. Uh, Democrats have always been prepared, even when there was a Republican uh, president, as was the case with Donald Trump for four years, right. to be able to make the adjustments so that you're not hurting people. In this instance, though, the Republican Party wants to, by and large, say we're fiscally responsible. And so we will cut the dickens out of the budget rather than to simply raise the debt ceiling uh, by a percent or two. And um, I just think that it's absolutely disrespectful, first of all, because we're all taxpayers and we pay our bills. And so the government of the United States should be paying its bills. But if we don't, after we pledge the full faith and credit of the government, if we don't, it will really disrupt us nationwide countries going to stop doing business with us. Uh, corporations are going to begin to fail, particularly those that have international relationships. And the value of the dollar will decrease. Stock mm. markets will start to fall and everything else because we've never, never in this country since 1776 not paid our debts. But that's where we are. And to get back to your question about whether or not it will uh, pass, it passed the House by two votes because the Republicans are the majority here. And so they were able to make sure that they all voted for it. Um, um, and then it's got to go to the Senate, where many of us believe that it will be dead on arrival because senators don't want to jeopardize the creditworthiness of the United States. If that's the case, then it, it won't go beyond the Senate. And if it did, uh, President Biden has said that he would veto it send it back and put everybody back to work again to come up with a better, more humane American solution. Do we have a short time frame to get all this done? Uh, yeah, you know, it depends on whether or not you are looking at the estimates from the Congressional Budget Office or whether we're looking at the estimates from the Treasury. Uh, the estimate was that this would take place uh, around the 1st of August. Then it was rolled back because we realized that we had taken in more tax revenues as the nation uh, so that it looked like it was going to be the um, uh, the end of May. Now it looks like it might be the first week in June. Suffice it to say, though, it will be within the next uh, 60 days. And so um, the next issue here is for the Senate to take up the matter. And I'm sure they will within the next week or two. We only have a few minutes left, and I just wanted to learn more also about the Identifying Mass Shooters Act. And also, is there is there going to be a, a reviving of the George Floyd Policing Act? Well, let me start in reverse order. Uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed the House of Representatives uh, and was on its way to the United States Senate. It passed under Democratic control. It got to the Senate and there were efforts to filibuster it and not to get it out onto the floor for a vote. Um, and it died there. Like a lot of good pieces of legislation last year, uh, it never made it out of the Senate. Mitch McConnell, uh, Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott and others on that side of the aisle just decided they didn't want to do this. They didn't like 
the notion of doing away with qualified immunity for police officers. Some of them didn't like the ban on no chokeholds. Some of those did not like uh, the no-knock warrant situation. And some on the Senate side didn't like the idea that we would establish a national database of bad police officers uh, who have violated the trust of citizens in one jurisdiction or another so that they could not be hired. In other words, if you had charges against you in Baltimore City for taking advantage of somebody and it was clear uh, and you were disciplined, you know, you could turn around two months later and go to Anne Arundel County and get hired and, and nothing be said. Mm -hmm. So the database just puts everybody on notice. Now, uh, I just I don't understand uh, the reluctance in the Senate, but it died there. And um, the no knock provision was because of Breonna Taylor and the way she died. They didn't knock. They just went in. Uh, shot up the wrong place, killed the wrong person. Uh, the chokehold had to do with the fact that people were dying that way. It was an unnecessary way to apprehend somebody. Uh, and uh, the qualified immunity was that if you're a law enforcement officer, you've got immunity against almost everything under the sun, and so you can't be prosecuted. Those things just didn't, in my opinion, make any sense. And I should say that this had the support of a lot of good police officers because Nobody hates a bad policeman more than a right. good policeman. Right. Uh, but it didn't get out of the Senate. And now that it's here in the House, it won't get out of the House because the Republicans have indicated they, they won't allow it to come to the, the floor. Wow. Well, then there's finally the Identifying Mass Shooters Act. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's a good one to, to sort of wrap up on. Um, I was a member of this body in 1994. And what I'd like to say was my first tour of duty in the United States Congress. I spent five terms here, as you know, before uh, deciding to leave to go and try to save the NACP at that time, which was just about dead all across the, uh, the country. But before I left, one of the things that I worked on, along with Joe Biden, by the way, who was in the Senate then, was this whole notion of a ban on assault weapons. Because we knew that many of the mass shootings, not all, but many of them were made even worse by the use of automatic weapons that were assault style weapons that you don't even find uh, in war sometimes because of the capacity to kill so many people at once. And yet they were still being sold. So we were able to work to put in place a ban on assault weapons. We could only get a 10-year ban because the Republican Party at that time and many of the conservatives did not want a ban any longer than that. So that was the compromise, a 10-year ban on sale of all assault weapons. And that was 94. And most of us figured that by 2004, surely the Congress and the world and the nation would have been much more enlightened and would want to keep that ban in place. Uh -huh. But in 2004, uh, when I was not here, uh, it, it came up and it failed and it came up the year after that and it failed. And so we haven't had a ban on assault weapons uh, since 2004 and next year we'll make 20 years. In the meantime, all we've seen are mass shootings, mass shootings, mass shootings. All of them are not with assault weapons, but many of them, if not most of them are. Uh, they've been aimed at children. They've been aimed at shoppers. They've been aimed at parishioners. They've been aimed at churches and synagogues. So 
what we want to do more than anything else is to number one try to find a way to get that ban back in place but in the interim uh, I thought that we all should do what we can to try to find a way to prevent mass shootings if we could or prevent the frequency uh, and to find a way to call attention to what's going on so I had the idea that we should come up with a way of trying, if we could, to identify potential mass shooters before they become mass shooters. And it's a very delicate issue because there are privacy concerns that you have to take into account and uh, constitutional protections that you have to take into account. But I thought that we've got 20 years of data on mass shooters. We know their internet searches, we knew what their language was online, we knew where they would go on the dark web to conspire and to, to do other things. We knew how to match their behavior up with whatever record they may have had or not had. Uh, we knew when there was an effort to purchase a weapon and we knew based on their rhetoric that it was really more than rhetoric. For many of them, it was acting out early what they were gonna do later. And so the Department of Justice has had all of this data, this internet electronic digital footprint on every mass shooter that was ever caught or killed. And rather than for it to sit in the Justice Department, I thought we ought to take and find a way uh, to aggregate it, to scientifically look at it, uh, to get forensic people and scientists within the Justice Department to see if there are some basic algorithms, basic determinants that would suggest who is in fact more likely to do something like this before they do it, and then to turn that into information in the toolkit for the FBI, the Justice Department to use. A lot of these persons probably are already under surveillance, uh, which is the interesting thing. And so to be able to identify those with the greatest potential before they do something, I thought was one small way of helping us to deal with this issue. It's not going to stop mass shootings. Uh, it becomes, as I say, something that's in the toolkit of the FBI and the Justice Department, but at least it's an effort. And I think that in terms of uh, science, uh, algorithms, digital determinants, digital footprints, we, since we know so much and have so much information, why not try to find a way to look at what that information is suggesting with whom? So if there's already surveillance, that surveillance can be stepped up. Uh, so that's what the Identifying Mass Shooters Act is all about. Uh, we've got sponsors, co-sponsors who are Democrat and Republican, and we're working very hard to spread the word here in the Congress and encourage other people, quite frankly, to look at whatever way you can come up with to help deal with this situation of mass shooters, because as sure as we are talking, Judge Barber, there will be another mass shooting in this country in a week or two where innocent people will lose their lives to simply going to their church, their synagogue, their supermarket, their school, and it just has to stop. Understood, understood. I just greatly appreciate all the time that you have spent with us and shared with us and has, have really lightened us on being well informed about current legislation in Congress right now. You've been a wonderful congressman and you've been very informative and we appreciate your appearance on our program today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hope I can come back again and spend some time with you. Absolutely. Thank you again.